are going to move forward um, in our little discussion here about Revelation, but first we're going to pray. So Father, I just ask your Holy Spirit now to come and to inhabit this message, that it would be your message, not mine, that your glory would shine through even my words. So I ask you to bless the hearing of this message. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have been doing this series on Revelation for some time. And if, if you're new here, you might say, well, why are we doing this? What, why are you spending time on this? Well, for a number of reasons. I think Revelation tends to be one of the more misunderstood books of the Bible. People have uh, a number of different approaches to it. They either choose not to read it because they think it's weird, um, or they choose to read it and perhaps misunderstand some of what's in there and then can get off on a lot of different tangents in terms of what they think it says. Uh, so we wanted to try and I wanted to do a series that would hopefully clear up some of this, would appeal to people that had never even looked at the book because, you know, they just started it and it was like, okay, wait a minute, this has got animals with multiple heads and eyes, and I, I just don't think I can really process that. Um, so if you've not ever delved into it, hopefully this is helping you to some extent uh, understand it better. And if you kind of had some preconceived notions of what it was all about, I hope it's helping you as well. Um, and as always, all of our messages are out on our website. So if you just go to harmonyvineyardchurch.com, and click on the sermons tab, they're all there. So you can, you know, if you missed some of the earlier ones, you can catch up if you'd like, listen to, uh, especially would sort of encourage you to listen to the very first one because that kind of sets the stage for all of them. Um, but, so that's why we're doing it. So we are now, <coughs> this week, in chapter six. So let's look at, uh, first of all, sort of, we'll recap from two weeks ago when we ended chapter five. And so, um, essentially, the big idea of that whole thing was that despite how much we all worry about the state of the world, um, we should have assurance and confidence because God and Jesus really have this all figured out, right? They, uh, they kind of have a plan. They understand how this is all going to end, and we don't really have to worry so much about it. And some of the insights that we drew from that is that, uh, well, first of all, that because God has saved us, it only makes sense to worship him. We owe him at least that much uh, because of what he has done for us. Secondly, you know, when you, when you truly believe in your heart that Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is Romans 10, 9 and 10, um, you are changed. In that moment, when you believe that, you are changed. You go from being a sinner to a saint. You go from being an orphan to an adopted son or daughter. And, and I know Phil talked about this, and I have talked about this as well, and the fact that, you know, sometimes our culture clouds the fact that, you know, when we think of orphan. Well, orphans in this time were somewhat honored because their parents chose them to 
be a son or daughter. And so it was actually something that was a stronger covenant between an orphan and a parent than a natural born child and a parent. And so when, when, we, uh, when scripture talks about us being adopted as sons and daughters, that's a powerful, powerful statement that we need to really hang on to. And then finally, you know, worship is transformative and it does play a role in our transformation. And see, I think a lot of that happens is when we kind of, because what, we, what happens in worship or what should happen in worship is that it's one time at least where you take your eyes off of yourself and focus them on God. And, when, and if we'll do that, then there's transformation that can take place. Carmen, you're stealing my show. <coughs> Everyone's watching you. No one is listening to me. <laughs> it's okay, really. I, she's fine. Um, so now we're going to get into uh, chapter 6, right? And so this is where last time we were talking about the scroll, right, and the fact that Jesus was the only one worthy to open the scroll. Well, now we're getting to the point where it's going to be opened. And so he, Jesus now starts to break the seals that have held this scroll closed. Uh, and then once all of these seven seals have been uh, broken, the scroll opens up and we then see the trumpet judgments that we'll talk about in several weeks. Uh, now the first four of these seal judgments that we're going to talk about today have another name. And they are more famously known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so there's art and all sorts of things out there. This was a painting by a Russian painter uh, that I found. And I think it's kind of cool. If you don't notice, right at the very top of the picture is the lamb. And this is one of those paintings that you can look at a while that there's all kinds of stuff that he's kind of hidden in here. Uh, or not really hidden, but just isn't obvious when you first look at it. And so uh, if you just go out and once again do a search on Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and, p and click on Images, you'll certainly find this among some others. Um, and so from the actions of the Lamb and from the four living creatures, we again are, are really starting to see this idea of God's sovereign control uh, throughout of human history. And it's pretty interesting that these first four seal judgments focus really on the depravity of humankind. And they are a means of showing that to a certain extent, God simply allows sin to come full circle back upon itself and self-destruct in, in, in many aspects. So in other words, God sort of lets evil run its course. And uh, the, it, because so much of this ties back, so much of Revelation ties back to the Old Testament, uh, this passage does as well. And it really ties back to a, a passage in Zechariah. It's Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And in those passages, it talks about uh, a picture of the four winds as God's chariot uh, that go back and forth patrolling the earth. And um, they are essentially God's means of controlling history, right? And so that's kind of what we're seeing here as well. So let's start and actually look at the text. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to Revelation 6, verses 1 through 8, and we will uh, have them up here on the screen for you as well. 
So starting in verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Yeesh. <laughs> Not pleasant. Now, one of the things that I found fascinating, because I honestly had never really noticed this before, but um, there are a lot of scholars that uh, have noted there's a very, very close structural similarity between the six seals in this chapter, which we can kind of refer to as the big apocalypse, and events of what others have referred to as the little apocalypse, which show up in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, now, and I, I've got them up here. So you can sort of see. Now, it's probably a little on the small side, but you can get the idea. Now, most commentators will readily admit that the little apocalypse that Jesus talks about is a prophecy against Israel. But far fewer of them see Revelation 6 the same way, even though they really appear to be speaking about the same thing. So... As we go through the material, it's just something for you to keep in mind. And if this is something that kind of piques your curiosity, then uh, take a look at it for yourself and decide if you think this is what John's talking about. I tend to think it is because there's just no denying how close these things are. I mean, the first four are almost exact. Ooh. That was cool. <laughs> um so anyway, it's just one of those little interesting things that I wanted to point out as we go through this, that you know, there is this amazing similarity between these three things that Jesus spoke of, or these six things that Jesus spoke of, and the six things that we'll speak of this week and next week. So going into our insights here. Verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures, say in a voice like thunder, come. So John's heavenly vision now is continuing, and he is now observing the lamb opening the first seal of the scroll. 
And as we've talked about before, it really is a picture of Jesus um, and the leading role that he plays in consummating history because he is the one who is worthy to do this, to open these scrolls. And so John's watching the lamb, but what he then hears is this voice like thunder coming from somewhere that he can't really see at that time uh, that says come, which is essentially commanding this first horse to appear. And so then we move on to verse 2, and it says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, but he was given a crown, and he rolled out, rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. <clears throat> now, Jesus rides a white horse later on in this book. And uh, although the kind of the immediate conquest context sort of demands that this rider be connected with the other riders as a symbol of divine judgment, um, there are an awful lot of scholars that believe this is Jesus riding this horse. Um, he has a bow and he has a crown and he rides out to conquer, which is an indication of military conquest or war. Now, some see this as a reference to the Parthenians, which were a, a people that lived at that time, and they were sort of known for the fact that they had these mounted archers. Uh, you know, obviously a very challenging skill to be able to shoot with any accuracy a bow at, while riding on a horse. Uh, but it was the Parthenians who defeated the Romans uh, as recently as uh, 62 AD. So this was somewhat recent in the history and definitely relevant to this time period. Um, and they were known as, as formidable warriors, and their sacred color was white. So there's, some, there's certainly some connection here. Um, so who is this rider on this horse? And as I said, scholars never agree on anything, um, right, Donna? <laughs> um, however, there are some things uh, that they have seen. Some see the riders as angels. And there have been some that will go so far as to declare that this rider is actually the Antichrist, which I'm not really sure where that comes from, but I thought it was interesting to at least note. But there are several things that kind of point to this rider as being Jesus. First of all, he's riding a white horse, uh, which is, as I noted, is back, is, it will be seen later, like in Revelation 19, where we actually see Jesus come forth as riding a white horse. Um, there's also the fact that this rider is given a crown. And that also agrees with what we know about Jesus from other places in Revelation. And then finally, this rider goes out, and there's this word conquering. Now, this is the very same word in the Greek that was used in the letters to the seven churches when it talked about overcoming or conquering. Okay, And so it's... It's Christ who really is the conqueror par excellence. There is no one better. And so because all events in history are at his command, it's entirely appropriate that he should be the one who's represented as the leader of these judgments of God against um, his rebellious people. Because as I said, he is the center of history. 
It's Jesus who brings the judgment on, the, on these lands. And he's coming against his enemies in judgment. And it's somewhat hard for us sometimes to understand this because, you know, we're used to seeing Jesus coming to save and to heal. But in this case, he's coming to destroy. And so that these, these awful and terrifying riders that are coming with him are not messengers of hope by any means, but they're messengers of wrath. Moving on to verse 4. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So we have warfare and violence that obviously results in bloodshed and very likely is symbolized by the fact that the horse is red. And this next rider does something that's pretty interesting. He, he robs the earth of peace so that people will kill each other. And so this sword that he's carrying, this large sword, is very likely a representation of this kind of judgment of violent death. And so John's readers, reading this at the time, might be thinking, well, you know, this these sounds like maybe the persecutions that occurred under the Emperor Nero or the Emperor Domitian. But the second writer who sort of stands for war is really showing us how utterly depraved man is. See, God doesn't really have to incite us to fight against each other. He simply orders this messenger to take away the conditions of peace. And in a sinful world, maybe we should wonder why there aren't more wars than there already are, why there's not more bloodshed. It's probably because in some cases there are restraints on man's wickedness and on his freedom to work out the implications of hatred and rebellion. But we see that if God removes that, if he removes all of those restraints, unfortunately our ethical degeneracy is revealed in all of its ugliness. And this was absolutely fulfilled in Israel surrounding uh, and the surrounding nations in, in the last days um, of the Jewish war when the land was filled with murderers and revolutionaries, terrorists. I found a passage. Um, we talk a lot about uh, Flavius or Flavius Josephus. And Josephus is a writer who documented much of the history of Israel. And so it's one of the external sources to scripture that we can go to to sort of see that what the Bible says is true in many cases. And this is what he wrote in a book that he titled The Jewish War. Every city was divided into two armies and camped against one another. And the preservation of the one party was the destruction of the other. So the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood and the night in fear. It was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies, still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with infants, all dead and scattered about together. Women also lay amongst them without any covering for their nakedness. You might then see the whole province filled with inexpressible calamities, while dread of still more barbarous practices which were threatened was everywhere greater than what had already been perpetrated. So it paints a pretty grim picture of what was going on here. Um, 
and certainly shows that when that hand of, of peace is lifted, that man really goes down and, and is capable of some truly awful things. Well, verses 5 and 6. And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. Now this is one of those passages that sort of appears and so to someone reading Revelation. They're like, huh? What in the world does this mean? Um, well, I think part of what it's saying is the fact that when there's warfare and when there's bloodshed, eventually there's going to be economic hardship. Um, and so... And that's going to include famine. And so this voice uh, from this, um, this creature is what he is setting sort of the maximum price for wheat and for barley at a day's wages, which was about a denarius. Um, and so under normal circumstances, a person's going to eat about two pounds of wheat in a day. Um, but because it was so expensive, people started to buy barley, which was a much cheaper grain. But even then, these prices are inflated to about 10 to 15 times the normal cost of what this would go for. And this voice also says, don't damage the oil and the wine. And so uh, it was sort of known that in the ancient Mediterranean, when there was warfare, Armies were permitted to destroy standing crops. So any kind of a field of, of uh, grain of any kind or whatever, it was, it was okay to destroy that. But they were not supposed to destroy any vines or any olive trees. And the reason for that is that uh, there would have been this long-term devastation and an actual devaluing of the land that was conquered. And so it would have made the land worthless, you know, because those were such um, important uh, products of the agriculture of that time. And so there's a similar restriction that appears later on in Revelation in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 3, that says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees, which may in fact indicate there's a measure of God's mercy in the midst of all of this destruction. And the scales are a symbol of, uh, of the famine from this prophecy of Ezekiel in which the starving inhabitants were forced to, to weigh their food very, very carefully. And once again, there's a quote from Josephus that sort of describes what the search for food was like during that time. He writes, as the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it, and every day both these horrors burned more fiercely. For since nowhere was grain to be seen, men would break into houses. And if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied their possession of it. If they found none, they tortured them as if they had concealed it more carefully. Proof whether they had food or not was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches. Those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over. For it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation. Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their house 
In the extremity of hunger, some even ate their grain underground, while others baked it, guided by necessity and fear. Nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched half-cooked from the fire and torn into pieces. You can imagine. They couldn't even wait to set plates or anything out. They just, before it was even fully cooked, would take it and eat it. I mean, that's how bad this had gotten uh, during this, this particular time. In verse 8, there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades, or Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill. Now, pale is actually a kind of a yellowish-green color, which is really the color of a corpse. And so we have this rider named Death, and he's accompanied by one named Hades. And Hades really refers to the realm of the dead. It's really not the final place, resting place of the wicked. This is the realm of the dead. And death and Hades kill a fourth of humankind in four specific ways. Sword, famine, plague or disease, and wild beasts. And so God has allowed human wickedness to do its destructive work, resulting in this judgment of, uh, or through warfare, bloodshed, famine, disease, and death. But once again, there's this small measure of restraint because they were allowed to only touch a fourth of the people. And these four specific ways parallel once again uh, the, the curses that we find in, the, in Ezekiel in 1421 which reads, for this is what the sovereign Lord said. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague to kill its men and their animals. So we see again how Revelation is pulling from parts of the Old Testament. And so the uh, kind of the major idea for this, this section is this idea that as Jesus is opening these four, these first four seals, God's allowing human sinfulness to run its course. And the result is warfare, violence, bloodshed, economic hardship, and death. So what do we do with this? <laughs> this is some pretty grim stuff. So how can it... How does it influence us? How can we, what can we take away from this? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I think we need to be aware that God's judgments often involve allowing sin to run its course. So I think the orchestration of the judgments is kind of interesting to look at. The lamb opens the seals. The living creatures who are uniquely positioned near God's throne to carry out the orders command the horses to come. The action proceeds, yet the horsemen themselves inflict the judgments. And although God's not directly sending these plagues on the world, there's little doubt that he's allowing them to happen and then the consequences of, or as the consequences of human sinfulness. And I think this 
idea leads to two main implications. The first is that we've got to realize the disastrous and deadly effects of sin. You know, the four horsemen represent the kinds of things that sin produces, and they're, they're not pretty. How often do we think about the consequences of, of our own sin, not only for ourselves, but how it might affect the lives of others? I mean, people often talk about the idea of pornography being a victimless crime. You know, well, it's just me. You know, it's just affecting me. Well, no, that's not true. Because it's, a, if it's affecting the way you see others. It's affecting the way you, might, you probably see women in general and perhaps how you see the women who are closest to you. So it's not a victimless crime. And we could point to many other examples where you know, your sin, you're thinking, well, it's just, it's just mine, but that's... It's just a false way of thinking of it. There are consequences that go beyond the damage that it's doing to you. And I think even small sins can have deadly consequences. How many people in here have seen Larry Boy and the Rumor Weed from Veggie Tales? Yeah, the parents all have. <laughs> um, well, that's kind of a classic Veggie Tales story. Larry Boy and the Rumor Weed. And um, there's an epic battle that occurs in this between Larry Boy and, you guessed it, a giant weed. Um, and it's a, it's a really big lipstick-wearing, song-singing plant that grew from this tiny little plant. But that's really what rumors do isn't it? Starts out as a really small thing. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'll just share this with so-and-so because they won't tell anybody else. And then it just spirals from there. And before you know it, people are hurt, reputations can be damaged, and so on. There's a, uh, a much darker and a definitely a more grown-up movie called Little Shop of Horrors. And it tells the story of a nerdy florist who nurtures this cute, blood-sucking little plant into a man-eating monster. <laughs> There's lots of examples, but the message is really the same in all cases. When we nurture these small seemingly harmless seeds of sin, eventually we're going to reap a whirlwind of destruction. I think the other thing that this passage speaks to us about or speaks about God and his purposes. And the, the one thing that this ought to do above all others is that this passage is going to strip away any kind of sentimental view that you have of God as this benevolent parent who just accepts us as we are and um, consoles us when things are bad. Well, that's partly true. 
But what we see in this passage is that sin matters to God a lot. And if we're not willing to get it out of our lives, then we're going to face consequences for it. One author put it like this, God is not whoever we would like him to be. God is God. He continues, if the image of the all-powerful creator frees us from our sentimentalism concerning God, then the image of the Lamb of God should free us from our fear. So there are both sides, right? There's the wrath of God, but then there's the knowledge that God is love above all things. And although human sinfulness runs its course regarding warfare and violence, bloodshed, all these things, even those prove subservient to the larger purpose that God's trying to achieve. And so the image of the lamb dying on the cross has got to be seen alongside of God Almighty, who ultimately is responsible for judging sin and evil. And so we've got to look at the world through both of these lenses, through the throne of God and the cross of Jesus. And that only then will we really see, begin to see God as he truly is. The other point that I think we can make with this is that as we read things like this, we've got to focus more on what this vision's effect would be doing to those who read it in that time as opposed to looking for a map of end times events in this. Um, you see, it, if we attempt to use these judgments and then kind of look at current events and try to use them to predict future events, we're missing the whole point of what John's telling us here. It's not our job to predict when Christ is going to return or to map out a detailed timeline of what the end of time is going to look like. Now, I know that's intriguing, and I know we're all tempted to do it. It's like, oh, have you seen there's been an earthquake in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma hasn't had an earthquake in I don't know how many years, and it was a big one, and I don't know. So you, you can immediately kind of fall into that and go, oh, well, that's got to be a sign of the end times. Well, you know, that was a popular view 10, 11 years ago when we were getting hurricanes by the dozens, it seemed, every year. And this one that's now come into Florida is the first one in 11 years. So I guess that was really not the end of time back then either. You can't restrict any of this to any particular period of history. Paul reminds us, death is the last enemy of all of us. That's really all you have to be concerned about. So I think a better approach is to look at this in the same way that the original readers of this book or letter would have read this and responded to it. The, the seven churches that this was written to would have read this and, and no doubt would have been filled with a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. 
but they would have also been confronted with this question. In what or in whom are you trusting? These visions should shake our attachment to false sources of security, such as our nationality or our power, our wealth, or even our own health. Many people are also going to trust far too much in their citizenship, their bank accounts, and the secure circumstances in which they find themselves right now. The four horsemen remind us not to be seduced by a false sense of security that's provided by human empires or institutions or even personalities. None of us, none of us can be safe from death. And so as a result of all this, this passage really demands that we implicitly trust in the Lord as the only reliable source of security. What is the source of your security? Perhaps you may be familiar with the story of Horatio Spafford. Mr. Spafford had been a successful lawyer, but in the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, his finances were decimated. He literally watched his investments go up in smoke. Just two years later, the Spafford family was headed to Europe, and Horatio sent his wife and his daughters, he had four daughters, he sent them on a ship um, ahead of him. Before the family could be reunited, Spafford received a telegram from his wife that began with two terrible words, saved alone. Their ship had been struck by the British ship Loch Earn, and his girls had perished along with 222 others. And as he passed, as he, he immediately got passage on a ship and went to be with his wife. And as he passed by the place of their death, he wrote a hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, It is well with my soul. That song documents the source of Horatio Spafford's security. If such calamity were to strike your life right now, what would the words of your song say? Would you be able to write, perhaps not as eloquently as Mr. Spafford did, but would you be able to write words similar to his about knowing in the midst of unspeakable tragedy? Because what he's saying here is, 
the good is going to happen. That's the first line. When peace like a river attendeth my, my soul or attendeth my way. He's saying there are times when things are good. Or when sorrow like sea billows roll, when those, those very, very difficult times come upon us. And what Mr. Spafford is saying is, in either case, I know what my God has taught me to say. And it's not, oh, woe is me. It's not, I wish this was happening to somebody else. It is well with my soul. What would your song say? It's worth thinking about. Because once you do, it will identify the source of your security. <laughs>